Hello, this is Pastor Don from the Atlantic Evangelical Free Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check us out on the web at AtlanticFreeChurch.com. In the meantime, I hope the sermon you're about to hear draws you closer to the Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening, and God bless you. Our scripture for today is Psalms 51, verses 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundance mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in this secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my inequities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Psalms 51, 1 through 12. Thank you, uh, worship team. Thank you, Brian, for leading or reading. We are going to get into the Word in just a moment. I wanted to remind you that we are sharing the Lord's Supper together, so that is part of our service. We'll go right into that right after this morning's psalm, and uh, this morning's psalm will prepare our heart very well for the Lord's table this morning. Uh, If you are joining us at home, uh, now's a great time to go get some crackers and some some juice or something like that that will let you participate with us. We encourage you to do that. Uh, You are part of us, and we are part of you, and so we hope you will uh, share the Lord's Supper together uh, there from home, and and we'll lead through that. And then everyone here in the room, Hopefully you were able to get one of these when you came in. If you did not, we'll take a moment when we get to that part of the service and a couple of the elders will bring, you, bring them to you. They're, uh, they're in a tray, which we'll bring to you. So uh, that's what, how we'll do that. I also wanted to just remind you, I won't say much about it, but I'll remind you of the Christian Life and Witness course, which we're, uh, starts this Thursday night. So it's three successive Thursdays in a row. It's a Billy Graham Evangelistic Association class that we are hosting here for kind of Southwest Iowa. And uh, we hope many of our own folks will avail themselves of this. It's a free training. You don't have to sign up, which is always dangerous because if we don't sign up, we don't go. Uh, but uh, we, we hope you'll, you'll come out this Thursday night and you will be blessed by that two-hour training. It runs from 7 to 9. All right, enough of that. Let me, uh, let me ask God's help with this passage and we'll get right into it. Father, thank you so much for, uh, for your word. I appreciate what Kurt prayed before, and I'll redouble his prayers or agree with his prayers. Would you please guide us through this? Help me, Lord. Uh, This is a familiar passage for many, maybe not all, but for many. And the danger always with a familiar passage is we think we've got it all figured out. And so I would just ask you to speak afresh 
to my heart and to all of our hearts here, whether we've sung and said and read Psalm 51 a thousand times, or this is the first time. Would you please speak to us today? Uh, words of life, words of hope, words of peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. believe this thing crashed on me two weeks in a row? What are the chances? I think I need a new iPad. There we go. The story is told of a pastor, a pastor who took a new position at a new church, and he was moving himself into his new office, and as he was, he's kind of, you know, opening drawers and all that sort of thing, and, and he found a note in his desk in one of the drawers from the former pastor. The former pastor had left him a note and with the note were three envelopes. And these three envelopes were numbered, number one, number two, number three, and they were all there together, the note and the three envelopes. Uh, the note said, Dear new pastor, sometimes you're going to mess up. You'll make big mistakes as you lead the church, and when that happens, I've prepared three envelopes to help you. Uh, the first time it happens, open number one. The second time you mess up, open number two. And then the third time, open envelope number three. So for the first few months, things went fine. That honeymoon period thing was there, but then he made his first big mistake. He messed up big time. So he went into his office, opened the drawer, took out envelope number one, and the message inside said, blame me. Blame me. So he did. He went back to the church and he said, it's the former pastor's fault. I inherited these problems. This is his deal. Uh, and uh, the church said, oh, okay, that makes sense. And so everybody kind of nodded and everything was fine. Things went well for another couple of months. It was uneventful. His holidays came. It was a great time. Uh, but then he made his second big mistake. He messed up again. So he went back to his office, opened the drawer, took out envelope number two, opened it up, and envelope number two said, blame the board. <laughs> blame the board. And so he did. He went back to the church. He said, it's the board's fault. I never agreed with that decision. These guys are the ones who wanted to do it. And everybody kind of nodded and said, oh, okay, all right, that happens sometimes. And uh, things, again, things went fine. There were a few weeks where things was no problems, but then he made that inevitable third big mistake. He, he messed up again, went back to his office, opened the drawer, took out envelope number three, and inside the message said, prepare three envelopes. <laughs> this morning we're going to talk about guilt. Guilt, what do you do when you mess up? Big time. What do you do when you mess up big time? What do, we, what do we do with those feelings and with the reality of being guilty? Uh, comedian uh, Irma Bombeck once described guilt as the gift that keeps on giving. And we kind of chuckle at that because it's true. Guilt is one of those emotions that's especially difficult for us. It's especially persistent, which is what she was going after. Uh, it hangs on. It, it's, it's a hard thing to get over. In fact, we've all known people, haven't we, who, who feel guilty, even when you know, they've been forgiven and they've moved on, but they still feel guilty uh, for things that they've done in the past. Indeed, some of us may even be those people. We may even be those people still feeling guilty. And the question we're going to ask this morning is, what are we supposed to do with that? What do we do with our guilt when we mess up? And just to be clear, when I talk about mess up, messing up, we're not talking about kind of boneheaded mistakes in leading a church. I've made plenty of those. But we're talking about sin. We're talking about big sin, little sin. We're talking about sin. What do we do with the guilt of sin in our lives? Well, Psalm 51 tells us, the answer. And the answer is that our only hope for the guilt of sin is the forgiveness of God. 
That's what we need. We need God to forgive us. We need his full forgiveness. You see, the thing about Psalm 51, it is, as you heard before, the the prayer of a guilty man. Psalm 51 is composed uh, by a man who was guilty. And I don't know if he wrote it right on the spot or if it came from his reflections afterwards, but this is the prayer of a guilty man. David had committed a series of terrible sins and they made him guilty. He felt guilty and he was guilty. Both were true. And the thing we have to recognize is this is not just a story in the Bible. This is our story. This is true of us as well. We sin against God just like David did. And so for the next few minutes, we're going to look at his prayer together this morning. And as I do, I want to, you know, we always need some structure to help us understand this, this passage. And so I want to show you four steps. I think there are four steps in this psalm that help us to, to receive God's forgiveness. And so these are four steps that are involved in receiving the forgiveness of God. And I'll tell you, the first three, there's a little bit of a distinction here, the first three steps are what we need to do in order to be forgiven and, and to deal with that guilt. Really, all three of these need to happen for us to experience that the forgiveness and then the release that comes with being forgiven by God, that, that, that forgiveness and, and release that comes. The first three are so that we can be forgiven and walk in that forgiveness. The fourth one is different because the fourth one is what we do because we are forgiven. And you'll, you'll see what I mean when I get there. But, but all four of them are steps that are involved with receiving God's forgiveness. So, so let's, look at, uh, let's look at it together. Let's look at Psalm 51. I asked Brian to stop at verse 12 because of the break there, but we're going to look at the whole psalm together this morning. So step number one, the first step to receiving God's forgiveness is that we need to appeal to God's mercy. We appeal to his mercy. This is where it begins. Uh, It begins with calling out to God and and asking him, Lord, have mercy on me. We're we're appealing to his mercy rather than to something else. And this is what uh, David starts with, right? This is where he begins. Uh, The nice thing about Psalm 51 is we know more about the background for this psalm than we do most psalms. The last couple of weeks, we looked at psalms where we didn't know what the the backstory was. We guessed, but we didn't know for sure. This one we know, and and we're told right here in the the title, the the superscription it's called sometimes, uh, this was added by later authors, but they're ancient authors. They knew way better than we did. We do, and, and here's what they say. Uh, my Bible reads it this way. It's, it's to the choir master. That's who's going to use this. It's part of worship. And then we're told it is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went into him after he, David, had gone in to Bathsheba. That's what this psalm is about. Now, this episode is recorded. We're not going to read it this morning, but I recommend you go back and read it on your own. I did this week, and it helps fill in. Uh, but uh, it, it's referenced, it's described at length, actually, in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, that's where this story is told. And it is one of the saddest stories in the Bible. I really think it is. Uh, because it's the story of how David, a godly man, a man passionate after God's own heart, uh, committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And if you don't know the story, or if you just haven't read it in a little while, I'll remind you, Bathsheba was one of David's subjects. She she was one of the women in his kingdom. She was a Jewess. She was an Israelite, which means God had entrusted her to his care. David was supposed to be taking care of Bathsheba as one of, of his people, not using her for his own pleasure, and that's, that's who she is. But, but then to make matters worse, not only is she a Jewish woman in his kingdom, she's also the wife of one of David's best friends and one of his best soldiers, a man named Uriah. 
Uh, Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. He had this group of top-notch generals and leaders. Uh, the Bible calls them his 30 men. Uriah was one of them. And Uriah, when 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins, Uriah is actually away at war. David is home in Jerusalem, but Uriah and the rest of the soldiers are off fighting in David's name. Meanwhile, David is home seducing Uriah's wife. That's, that's what's going on there. But then, but then, believe it or not, the story actually gets worse than that because not only does David commit adultery with Uriah's wife, he then tries to cover up the adultery by committing murder. See, Bathsheba becomes pregnant as a result of, of her and David's relationship. And at first, David actually comes up with what he thinks is a pretty good plan. He, he decides to <clears throat> cover up the pregnancy by bringing Uriah home. So he basically kind of gives, uh, gives Uriah the, the weekend off sort of a thing or some time off. It would have been longer than a weekend. But he, he summons Uriah from the front. And David's idea is that he's going to urge Uriah to spend some quality time with his wife Bathsheba. And then when she begins to show a few months later, people are kind of like, wow, that's odd. Oh, yeah, I remember Uriah came home for that, that time period. And they all say, okay, well, that explains it. It's clearly Uriah's child. David's plan goes bad, though, because Uriah refuses to sleep with Bathsheba while he's home. And it's an integrity issue, right? If you're a general, this is the kind of soldiers you want. He, he says, I, 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 it's, it's wrong for me to be on leave and enjoying my wife when all of my other soldiers are off at war right now. And so Uriah actually refuses to go spend time with his own wife. He, he sleeps outside instead. David tries twice to get him so drunk that he will. And even then, even though he's drunk, Uriah still won't go spend that time with, with Bathsheba. And so David's plan is foiled by Uriah's integrity. And in the end, David kind of becomes desperate, and he decides to get rid of Uriah. And so he gives Uriah a message, a sealed secret note, and he says, Uriah, give this to Joab, the head general, when you get back to the front. And when he, Joab opens the note, the note says, put Uriah right up there where you wouldn't normally attack, right up next to the walls so that he's killed by the, by the enemy soldiers. And that's what happens. Uriah and a few other people, too, are killed because of this order David gives explicitly. It's a stupid order. It's not an order that's going to help this, destroy the city. It's an order to get those men killed, especially Uriah. Months later, actually, it's almost a year passes, God sends a prophet. And you read about it in the superscription, a prophet named uh, Nathan. Nathan goes to David. He confronts him and... He tells a parable. You can read all that in 2 Samuel 12. Uh, and David is exposed. God uses Nathan the prophet to expose David's sin. His guilt is exposed. And that brings us to the prayer. That is the, all the background. That's what David had done when this prayer begins. Uh, and so as I said a minute ago, this is the prayer of a guilty man. Right? This is the prayer of a guilty man. And, and despite everything he's done wrong, Right? I just told you a lot of things David did wrong. But despite what David did wrong, he gets this next part right. right. So you wouldn't think I would tell you to take advice from the kind of man I just described to you. But we need his advice because we're in the same boat he's in. And so he actually he knows what he needs to do to, get, to, to receive God's forgiveness. And that, like I say, that brings us to the psalm. Where does he start? It's verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from this iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. That's where he starts. Notice what David does not try to do. 
he does not try to justify himself. There's absolutely no sense in which he tries to make excuses. Lord, she looks so beautiful. She was so beautiful, Lord, bathing on the roof like that. I mean, she shouldn't have been up there, Lord. You know, I'm just saying, God, it's kind of her fault really more than mine. You know, really, David doesn't do anything like that. There's no sense in which uh, he tries to shift blame to Bathsheba, uh, nor does he kind of plead, you know, kind of exhaustion or burnout, you know, Lord, it's hard being the king. You know, there's, there's so much pressure, so much stress, being a public figure like this. I just needed a little, little something for me, God. He doesn't try that. Uh, he doesn't even appeal to the covenant. And this one might have been his best tack. Uh, a few chapters earlier, a few years earlier, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had made a series of eternal promises to David. He had promised David that his heirs would sit on the throne of Israel forever. David might have appealed to that one. You know, hey, God, remember, I'm kind of special. You know, I mean, yeah, I, really, I messed up over here, but um, I'm, I'm pretty special. Remember how special I am. Make sure you go easy on me. But that is not what David says. His appeal is all about who God is, right? It's your abundant mercy, your unfailing love. That's what, that is the only thing that he appeals to. It's who God is. Because, he, I mean, there's no sense in which he feels he has any sense of deserving what he's asking for. He's casting himself on the mercy of God. And so he's, what he's leaning into here is something very, very, very important about God's character. And it's that God's character is the foundation for God's forgiveness. It's not that we deserve his forgiveness. I think sometimes we, especially we moderns, but maybe all humans are prone to this, we almost have this sense that God ought to forgive us. You know what? You know, like you might, you know, forgive a cute puppy. You know, you get a puppy and the puppy goes and he chews your best slippers and you're like, oh, a cute puppy, I can't do that to the puppy. We almost think like, like God is looking at us that way. Like, like, uh, you know, like we're cute puppies. Uh, but, but it's not about that when he's forgiving us. He's forgiving us because of who he is. His very nature is to be loving and compassionate and merciful. That's what David appeals to. He appeals not to anything in and of himself, but he appeals to God's character. And so where do we start in understanding? We, we start in understanding that we, we need his mercy. There's no sense in which God owes us forgiveness or owes us a, a release from the guilt that, we are, that we're feeling or we're experiencing. Step number two, the second step that we see in this text to receiving God's forgiveness and that freedom from guilt is that we need to agree with God's verdict. And, and these things, they flow right into each other. Because asking for mercy is a good start, but it's only a start. We also then need to confess the sin that we've committed. And, and really what confession is, is it is agreeing with God's verdict, God's understanding of what we've just done. And, and this is important. You know, again, sometimes we, we act as if what we've done was merely inconvenient or it was merely unwise or, you know, oh, well, I just made some bad choices there. I just made some mistakes. But the Bible's not going to let us off the hook on that one. This psalm isn't going to let us off the hook. What David has done is wickedly, offensively sinful. And that's what confession is. Confession is agreeing with God's assessment of our sin. Again, it's not just a, it's not just a couple of bad choices. It is, it is sin. Uh, sometimes, when we, uh, sometimes when we confess, we almost get it in our heads as if we're telling God something he doesn't know. But he knows, right? He's, God knows already. So why confess? 
You ever ask yourself that question? Why do I still need to confess my sin if God already knows what I did? Well, we need to confess our sin because what we're doing in the process of confessing is saying, you're right, God. That was sinful. You are right. I'm wrong when I try to give myself a pass on that thing. It is sinful. And that's what David's doing in in verses 3 through 6. That's where he goes next. It's verses 3 through 6. It's the next section here. And he actually, there are two very important things he says about sin. And we need to be able to to acknowledge them both, right? So he says two things about sin here in these verses. The first is that he has sinned against the Lord, right? So he focuses in on the specifics. I've sinned. And not only have I sinned, but I've sinned against you, God. That's what you've got in verses three and four. And so he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's a powerful statement because a year has passed where he's been able to hide this from a lot of people but it's never got out of his mind. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you, talking to God. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words. You're, you're right in confronting me, Lord, and you are blameless in your judgment. Now, at first, verse 3 makes us scratch our heads a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, what do you mean against God only have you sinned? It seems to me you did Uriah pretty bad. You know, he's definitely sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his own family, his wives and his children. Uh, he's certainly sinned against his kingdom, his subjects. Uh, he's sinned against Bathsheba. You know, biblicists have debated for 3,000 years how much she was involved, but however much she was involved, the onus is on him. He's the king. Right? And so he's clearly abused his position uh, with this woman. And so, he, and, and so he's definitely sinned against her as well. And so there's a whole lot of people here that David has sinned against. So why does he say against you and you only have I sinned? Well, it's because he understands that, that sin is ultimately against God. It is ultimately against God. Yeah, it's, almost, it's, it's standard operating procedure that we hurt each other. Yes, we hurt each other when we sin, and that's bad. He's not downplaying that. He's not saying that's bad, that, that that's good or that it's not a problem. It is a problem, but the real problem is that our sin is against God. He's the one we offend, which, which diffuses and maybe even just blows up so many of the things we say sometimes, especially with, with secret sins. You know, well, if nobody knows... Right? Or if they're both consenting adults, I mean, you know, if nobody else is hurt, you know, why, why would that be sinful then? What's the problem? Well, the problem is that it's against you and you only have I sinned. And so even if it were to be kept a secret, and it's awful hard to keep those secrets, but even if something could be kept secret, even if it didn't hurt anybody else, and usually it still does hurt somebody else, but even if it didn't, uh, the real problem with sin is that it's against God. And this part is important when it comes to, to the guilt we do struggle with. We need to understand, I, mean, I think one of the reasons people still struggle with guilt is they don't understand who they really offended, that it, that it was God. And so we need to process it with him rather than just kind of soothing it over so the wife isn't angry anymore or so that our parents, uh, you know, let us, you know, take us off of being grounded or whatever it might be. God is the one we have to treat with first and foremost. So David says, I'm a sinner, or I, I have sinned, right? So that's what David looks at the specific cluster of acts in his case, and he says, that, that is sin. What I did right there is sin. But then he makes a second confession, which is just as important, if not more so, and it's that I am a sinner. So I have sinned, but I'm also a, a sinner. And, and, and that's what you get in verses 5 and 6. And so he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
David makes a, another key confession there in those two verses, verses five and six. And this time what he confesses is that he's not just sinful on the outside where he's done these things, he's sinful on the inside. Right? That is to say, he's sinful in the very place where God is looking for holiness. And I think that's what's going on with verse six. I've always kind of struggled with interpreting verse six in the context of verse five. But I think what verse six is saying is, you want me to be holy on the inside, and instead I'm this hot, sinful mess. Right? You desire truthfulness on the innermost parts, but instead all you've got is, is this guy who's conceived in iniquity. And so what's he doing? He's admitting that his problem goes far beyond just a series of bad choices. His problem is that, uh, that he's a sinner in his very nature. He is a sinner. And the other thing he says about this is that, no, notice how deeply rooted it is, it's not like this started when Bathsheba came along. Right? If he had just not been up on the roof that day, none of this would have ever happened and he would have continued to be a good person. That's, that's not what he says. Notice what he does. He takes it all the way back. It's from the very moment I began to exist. That's what he means when he says, in sin my mother conceived me. That is not a slam on David's mother. He's not saying like she and her, his father like had done something sinful. That's not the right way to understand that. What he's saying is, the moment I came into existence, the moment that zygote existed, that little two-cell or four-cell organism, however that works, it's been a while since I've looked at it, the moment I came into existence, I, I was a sinner. I'm a sinner, he says. And, and here's the really hard part about all of that. Everything I just told you about David is true about us. It's true about me. It's true about you. Because it's not just David's story. It's our story. And you talk about, you know, theologians use different terms. You call it sin nature. You can call it original sin. Whatever you call it, the point is we need God's forgiveness. We need his release from guilt, not only because of the things we do, but because of who we are what we are in our fallen nature. We are sinners in our very nature. That part's got to be dealt with as well. So we need to agree with that. This fundamental idea that flies around today, all human beings are basically good people, and if we could just educate them the right way, it's wrong. It's really wrong, and I think it's, it's why we, so some many of the problems we have, we are not basically good. We're created in the image of God, but we're fallen, we're sinful, until and unless Christ does something for us. So, step number three, the, the third step to receiving God's full forgiveness uh, is to then ask for cleansing. And so we need to ask for God's cleansing. We need to actually ask him to forgive us, right? So, so appeal to his mercy, uh, agree with his verdict. Yeah, that was sinful. Some people stall out there. And they're, you know, they kind of just walk around feeling with guilt and dealing with an inappropriate low self-esteem and all this kind of thing. And they never move to this next third step, which is do your work, God. Do what only you can do. Cleanse me from my sin. And this is what we have in verses 7 through 12. He's going to ask God to, to cleanse him from his sin. And uh, he actually says three things about it. I'm going to kind of tick these off. I think they help us understand what God does uh, functionally when he forgives us what he does. There's three things David talks about here that he does. Uh, the first is that he removes the, sta- the, the, removes the sin. Remove my sin. And you know what? As soon as I say that, why don't you write the word stain instead? Because I wish I'd put stain. Remove my stain. That's really what he's asking for. Take away the guilt. Take away this stain that's on me because of my sin. You see, well, let me read them. Verses 7, uh, seven through 9, this stanza is what, where we see this part. And so he says, purge me or cleanse me, other translations say, with hyssop. 
and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've broken, I think he's talking there about conviction, conviction of sin. Let the bones you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. See, David knows what he deserves. He is well acquainted with the Mosaic law, and he knows that the Mosaic law says that he should be killed. He should be condemned. Doubly so. The the penalty for murder is death, and the penalty for adultery under the Mosaic law is death. And so David is doubly condemned. Even if he could somehow get off on one, he'll, he'll he'll be convicted on the other. And so he is praying that God will remove the condemnation. Take it away from me. That's the, the thing with the hyssop. Hyssop and, and being washed. He's now using the language from the tabernacle. Hyssop was used as part of the cleansing process so that someone could participate in, um, in, the, in the cultus, in the, uh, the, pro, the, the things that needed to be done to be forgiven of sin there in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And so he's using the language of the temple to ask God to, to wash away the sin. Right, we, you know, we would say, nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash me clean. It's, 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 that, it's, it's the Old Testament version of that picture. Use this to wash, wash my sin away. Wash, remove my condemnation. And I think this is a big part of, of, of the process of, of being released from guilt, is understanding that this is what we are offered in Christ. When we confess our sin to him and we, we cast ourselves upon his mercy, he removes that condemnation. He doesn't just kind of leave it there and and just kind of ignore it. He removes it. That's the New Testament language. Uh, Romans 8.1 talks about there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has removed our guilt. He's washed it away in his own blood there on the cross. And so that's where David begins. He removes, part of this cleansing he's asking for is the removal of the stain of his guilt. But but you're not done yet because there's more God's going to do when he forgives our sin. He's also going to renew us on the inside. And so David prays, renew my soul. And that's verse 10. Uh, There's an old chorus that's built around verse 10. Some of you might remember it. Verse 10, uh, he says, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's that's, uh, what he's praying for there is for God to clean him up on the inside. And so it's interesting. Put yourself in David's spot. Uh, David's been a pretty righteous guy. Right? If you do read his story in First and Second Samuel, he's a pretty good man. I mean, he's got a little bit of a temper, you can tell, and he's not perfect, that's for sure, but he's never messed up this bad, and now he has. And so he now sees firsthand what he is capable of doing, even him, a man who loves God so much, God's chosen king, even he is broken up on the inside. And so what's his prayer? Fix me on the inside. Cleanse my heart, Lord. If that's the part that's that foul, that's the part I want you to change. And this is really the heart of the gospel. This is what Jesus does for us. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation, right? It's this, it's, that's what David's talking about here in, in Old Testament language in, in verse 10. Uh, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Uh, the new has come. We're new on the inside. We're born again. We're rejuvenated. We're regenerated is another term we use sometimes. And so that's part of what God does as well. He, he removes the stain and he renews our souls. And then the third part of this, the cleansing, is, is restoration. And that's part of David's prayer too. Restore my standing with you, Lord. Restore my position with you. And that's verses 11 and 12. Cast me not away from your presence. 
and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's a bold prayer. When you think about what David has done, that is a bold prayer because what he's asking for is he's asking God to let him experience him, his presence, God's presence, the same way he did before. David doesn't want to kind of settle for a, you know, before I messed up relationship with God and then an after I messed up relationship with God. He doesn't want to settle for that. He says, God, I want it to be the same. Restore my standing with you. And there is a little bit of a sense there in which he's also got King Saul in his mind, right? So King Saul, when he sinned, didn't repent with this kind of heart. And so Saul was set aside. The Lord actually removed his anointing from Saul and laid it upon David. I think that's in David's head, and David doesn't want that to happen to him. But I think it's bigger than just the the kingship. It's also this idea of his relationship with God himself. Renew, uh, restore my relationship with you, Lord. And the amazing thing about that is that God says, yes, God actually does what David asks for there. And I think some of the best, you can, you can read the history books, uh, the rest of 2 Samuel to see what that looked like in the history, but I think some of the better proof is just the Psalms. David wrote a bunch more Psalms after Psalm 51, and if you, re- if you look at the ones he wrote later in his life, it's clear that that relationship was restored, that David did have that same intimacy with God that he had before he sinned. And so that's what Jesus offers us. There isn't some sense in which, you know, when we can mess up so big that he doesn't want to have us enjoy communion and fellowship with him anymore. He wants to restore our standing with himself. Uh, years ago, I remember the story from back when we lived in Connecticut, uh, but uh, a prisoner, a man dressed in prison garb, showed up at the airport north of Hartford and, uh, for, for a ticket. He walked right up to mention this. Man in the, you know, the orange jumpsuit walks up to the United Airlines ticket counter. He says, I want a ticket to Chicago. And uh, the, the ticket agents were flummoxed. They're like, okay, you know, they're looking for manacles around his feet, this kind of thing. And uh, you know, what do you do? Do you sell a ticket? You, you know, sell a ticket to a man in prison clothing? And so they end up calling the police. And the police came and they kind of ran the background checks. And it turned out he was a free man. He had actually been released from prison. Uh, earlier that day, he'd had a relatively short sentence for something he'd done. And he'd served his time. And he wasn't on probation. He was, he was allowed to go. And he'd gone to the airport and because he wanted to get to Chicago. He had family in Chicago and he wanted to go have them help him uh, set things up again. So why was he in a prison suit? Why was he still wearing the oranges? What, what, what was that all about? Well, at that time anyway, Connecticut's policy was to just kind of kick him out the door. <laughs> they didn't give him any money. They didn't give him any clothes. They didn't even give him the clothes he'd had when he was arrested. They just kind of sent him out wearing the prison orange. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't do that to us. That's not what Christ done to us, does to us. He doesn't kind of say, okay, I'll, you've, you'll pay, I'll, I'll forgive you, but you still go out with the big A on your chest or whatever it might be. Uh, you, you are, he removes that condemnation and he restores our standing with himself. And I do think there are people who don't get this part. This is the part where they stall out and continue to, to suffer under the heavy burden of guilt. And, and so they get the first parts. They understand that, God, we, we, that it's only God's mercy that can help us. They understand that they're sinners. But then they can't believe that God really does wash that sin all the way away and really does want to have a, a, us to have with him the fullness of that right relationship with him. 
He really does want that. And so instead, they, they, they clutch the guilt. They try to earn his approval. They try to be good enough so that God will accept him again. And it misses the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is, is God says, ask me to forgive you and I will forgive you. I will restore you fully and completely. So that's the first three steps. And uh, again, appeal to God's mercy, agree with God's verdict, confession of sin, and then ask for his cleansing. Ask him, invite that, and, and begin to walk in that restoration uh, that he, he offers us. All of that brings us to the last step, the final step in this, uh, in this psalm. And um, I, I look at this, I think I should have done a whole other sermon on this last part. I'm going to have to rush this last part. But th- what this last part is the response. And the response is to announce. This is what, uh, where the last really third of the psalm is all about. It's about announcing this grace that we've been so blessed to receive. Announce God's grace. And again, this is the one we do because we're forgiven. We're not, I'm not saying you've got to go share your faith in order to be forgiven. That's not how it works. But because we're forgiven, now we go out and we want everybody else to enjoy the same thing we have. Now, David uses a lot of very kind of religious-y language from the Old Covenant to describe this, so, but, but let, me, let me read it. And this is the part we didn't read before. So this is verses 13 through 19. After having asked for restoration, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Uh, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. When you've done that, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar." David's response, to summarize, David's response to being forgiven is that now he wants to help other people be forgiven. That's his response. He says so in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And you say, well, gee, David, where do you get off telling other sinners how to, how to not be a sinner? Look at the big sinner you are. But that's, it's, it's, it's all humility now. It's like, I've received this. I've got to help other people receive this. This is so wonderful. And so he wants other sinners, all the other sinners, to have what he has. That's the, the heart there. And, and so you see, that, I think that helps us understand the, the rest of the psalm. He, he talks about God's character in verses 14 and 15. This is what he wants to tell people. He wants to sing of God's righteousness, right? So since he's been cleansed of his sin, he's free now to come back into the, to the temple. He's free again to worship with gladness. And, and in his worship, he wants people to know God is worthy. God should be praised. God is righteous. That's all there in verses 14 and 15. Uh, he wants to know that it's sincerity. We need to come with sincerity to God. You get that in verse 16, right? It's, it's not just empty sacrifices. It's our hearts that God wants. He wants uh, humble hearts more than sacrifices, verse 17. And then verses 18 and 19, they, they almost feel anticlimactic when we are reading everything through a New Testament lens. But what he's saying in verses 18 and 19 is he wants this gospel to use a New Testament term in the Old Testament text, David wants this gospel to shine so bright that the whole world sees it. That's really what verses 18 and 19 are. And so what's he pray? He prays that the walls of Jerusalem 
will be built up. Why? So that Jerusalem will stay there and be fixed, and the, the nations will be able to look to Jerusalem and be able to receive forgiveness for their sins too, because Jerusalem is God's chosen city. And so he wants Jerusalem's walls to be built up. It's not some kind of nationalistic thing where he's praying for his own kingdom to endure. He's praying that Jerusalem will be built up so that the nations can come and receive salvation just like he's been able to do. And so, again, I'm summarizing six kind of dense verses, but, but those verses, they're all about David's desire to now take this grace and mercy and forgiveness that he's received and offer it to everybody else. That's his response. And that's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing when God's people tell other people about the forgiveness of God. And not just forgiveness in theory, but in practice, which is why we get this. You know, you look at ancient kings in the ancient world, you know, the Egyptians, whenever an Egyptian king did something that they didn't want people to know, they just erased it. (laughs) A Jewish king does something he doesn't want to know, he writes a poem about it. He makes sure it gets in the book and everybody uses it for worship. Why? So that they understand that that, that it's, it's not forgiveness in theory, some kind of a generic God forgives sins. It's God forgives my sins. These sins, here they are. You can read about them. These, he forgives my sin, David says. My sin, your sin, you know, my, my greed, my selfishness, my peevishness, my hatred, my anger, my rage, my lust, my jealousy, my, my temptations to theft, whatever it is. He, he forgave my sins. And when Christians share God's grace that way. And I'm not saying you got to air all your dirty laundry to somebody who just knocked on their door or something, but, but when there's an openness to it and, a, and, and a, a sense of saying, I'm a sinner, right? That old saying, you know, evangelism is just one beggar telling the other beggars where to find bread. I'm a sinner. I'm not coming at you with something that makes me better than you. I'm, I just figured it out sooner by his grace that I need the same thing you need, which is his grace. That's, that's powerful stuff. Uh, if you're still on the fence, I'll just say this in passing here before I close. Uh, if you're still on the fence about coming out on Thursday night to attend that, uh, that Christian Life and Witness class, I, I hope this will kind of give you a little shove onto the side of coming uh, because this is what God wants for us. He, he really wants us to share this good news, the good news of his, of his forgiveness, just like we see David do here in Psalm 51. Uh, several years ago, a, a little boy got lost in the woods out in Utah. This was, uh, a, big, it was a big deal at the time. And uh, it was on national news, this little boy lost in Utah, wandering around one of the national forests. And uh, he was actually missing for more than three days. He was like eight years old, I think was how old he was, seven or eight, that was how old he was. And uh, he got lost on a Friday night. He was on some kind of group camping trip. He got lost on Friday night. By Tuesday morning, they still hadn't found him. Hundreds of people searching for this boy, going through this forest, calling his name, trying to find him. And they couldn't find him. And then they found him. Right around lunchtime on that Tuesday, they, they found this little boy, and it was a heartwarming story. Those stories don't always end such, so well, but that one did. Uh, there was a little bit of a postlude to the story, though, that really kind of troubled people. The postlude was that folks were shocked to hear that the little boy had been hiding from his rescuers. His parents had, had trained him, actually, and if, if I remember right, he, he might have been mildly autistic or he had some kind of a, 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 a social disorder where he was af- afraid, and, and his parents kind of reinforced that, and they ended up really telling him, stay away from strangers. Somebody tries to talk to you, stay away from them, avoid them. And so that's what he did. And so he was lost in the woods, and these people are going through, calling his name, come out, and he hid from them for three and a half days. 
Psalm 51 says, stop hiding. Don't hide from your rescuer. Don't hide from the only one who can help you, the only one who can forgive your sins and take away that guilt that has burdened you for so long. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, as we get ready to come to your table, we want to do what we've just talked about uh, this morning. We want to call on your mercy, Lord. You are our only hope. Uh, We confess our sin, and we just want to pause now and do that, Lord. Uh, There are maybe folks here in this room who have kind of compartmentalized something. There's, There's something going on in their life, some attitude or some action or whatever it is, that they've just kind of uh, compartmentalized, and, and you, by your Holy Spirit, have, have surfaced that for them this morning. You've put your finger on it like Nathan did for David, and you said, this needs to stop. And Lord, right now, in the silence of a few minutes, uh, a few moments, would you bring any of those things to mind that we might do what David did and agree with you by confessing our sins to you now? Lord, we pray with David that you would, uh, you would cleanse us, uh, purge that, that sin from us with uh, the New Testament version of the hyssop, the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you so much for the promise that there's no sense. I, I'm sure David trusted in your character, but there's still a little bit of a sense of, of would he or wouldn't he, would you or not. Uh, but we don't live with that sense of, of wonder. We know. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We lay claim to that, Lord. As we think about our sin, as we think about those things that have plagued us, maybe in the distant past for some, maybe it was this morning for others, uh, where, whatever it is that's been heavy on our heart, we lay at your feet now and we accept that promised release that you purify us from all unrighteousness. We claim it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.